Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. This is Josh from the Crown of Command. Just going to make this short and sweet. Unfortunately, me and Carnifex found it difficult to uh, get together through the week to do our sort of pre-show ramble about um, what's happening on our social media and that kind of thing through our Discord. But go and check that out yourself. Go to the, the links below and uh, hit our Discord link or put it into your URL on your web browser. Accept the invite and join our wonderful growing group of uh, people in our community as part of the Crown of Command and uh, enjoy what's happening on there. So uh, yeah, apologies again that me and Carnifex couldn't get together to do this one, but I just wanted to get this show out because it has been a while, it's been a couple of weeks before or well, since our last uh, podcast was released. Now, if you haven't listened to that, I would strongly urge you do to do that because it's one of the my favorite ones because I had Johnny Watson talking with me, I had the guys uh, like Marcel and his wife and Timothy and David talking about the Old Hammer Poland event, which is really interesting. And then we had um, GJ talking about the Call of the Crown, uh, sorry, call, yeah, Call of the Crown 2 painting challenge, uh, which is also uh, really good to see that really growing and gathering a lot of interest. Uh, so yeah, if you haven't listened to that, please, I urge you to go and do that because it's a really great podcast, I thought. And um, that'll tie over this week, I think, with this one as well, with Lewis uh, Davies talking about the Old Hammer Fiction podcast. Again, if you have not visited that or listened to his stories, then please go to the show notes. There's a link there uh, that will redirect you to um, his wonderful podcast there. And uh, I think you won't be disappointed especially with um, with the stories that he has already uploaded and taken an enormous amount of time in recording. Uh, but there's also a Deathwing series of anthologies from the 40K universe as it's the 35th anniversary of uh, Rogue Trader. So Lewis thought it'd be a good idea to bring some of those stories to us. So I'm really looking forward to what's happening with that and the future of that podcast. It sounds really exciting. So guys, look, enjoy enjoy your painting week. I uh, hope everyone's doing well. Card effects, if you're out there, mate, I really missed you this week, buddy, but um, I'll see you again soon. And um, yeah, guys, stay safe. Enjoy the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks hey, again please. for um, for agreeing to come on. I'm really happy that you, you, um, you decided to... Uh, to come and chat with us for uh, for a bit because um, mm -hmm. yeah as soon as uh, you know as soon as I found out about your podcast I was like really interested in talking to you about it because um, yeah I, I was really surprised to see there was somebody out there doing this but so, in a such professional way you know what I mean like you've got the right voice you've got the right sort of tempo to it yeah um, so all these old stories that um, I had not. Uh, actually, I don't think I actually read a lot of those books back then, but I knew about them. I saw the covers. I saw the Ian Miller style covers yeah. they had on them. They're brilliant. And, um, of course, Paul Bonner's artwork and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was actually looking at through um, issue 140 of White Dwarf. That's right. Yes, that's yeah. got one in it as well. The one It was never in a – I can't remember what it's called, but it was never in um, – it was never in a collection, I don't think. But it was like – was they i think they were basically like lining up further collections when they pulled the plug on it which is what used to happen with as, as i think your podcast has shown quite often that like gw would take things so far down a track and then go actually it's not doing quite what we want time to stop 
and that 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 white dwarf one forty one was like never made it into a into one of the anthologies. I don't think. Oh really? Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's it's not the voyage south, is it? It's not. No, it's basically just going through all the Warhammer novels. And oh, oh, yeah. They're I'm thinking of like... something completely different. Then. Right. Sorry. That's okay because I think if people they, yeah because I White Dwarf one forty yeah. So yeah, so what White Dwarf one forty yes. is when I, I I collected White Dwarf up until I guess up until like the high two hundreds three hundreds before I realised they were slowly kind of like making my shelves collapse and it was like, and I hadn't played <laughs> Warhammer for ages and I was like what am I what am I doing like still mindlessly buying these magazines so I got rid of them all and White Dwarf one forty was where I chose to stop that's where my kind of my Warhammer story ends right? because right. it's the last issue in which they have an, an article about Warhammer fantasy roleplay. Right. Okay. And that they've, they've got the, the character rules for um, beasts in velvet, which is like the character, you know, which is a, a Jack Yeovil novel, like a, um, a sort of murder mystery whodunit. Yes. And um, and they did the, they did the character stats for those for use in, in Woofrook. And then the and at the same time they published that that article that you're talking about. So I was thinking of something slightly different. Oh, you're right. Um, they were they were they published um, that that article, kind of summing up the timeline of all of the the fantasy stories. Mm-hmm. And then that was it. And that was the last time fantasy roleplay was mentioned. It was kind of the end of the novels. I think I think that's the moment when like. So they kind of all of those like certainly those original fantasy novels came to an end, and although I think like um, the forty k ones, uh, the the Ian Watson um, yeah. <laughs> like Inquisitor, um, Chaos Child, and Harlequin, they they went on for a bit, but that was kind of it for that fantasy setting, and it's clear that they kind of pulled the like yeah like I'm, I was saying pulled the plug on it uh, just for like this isn't making money anymore. Um, what had happened before that is Flame was a subsidiary of GW that they set up just to do the, the fantasy roleplay stuff. Mm-hmm. So think of like they set up, you know, Marauder Miniatures as like a separate thing. Flame was like this separate company that was doing all, that was kind of off on its side, doing all of this, um, doing all of the, the roleplay stuff. And do you remember the Marienberg articles? Do you have a kind of familiarity with them? Uh, no, mate, I'm, I'm not, sorry. No, right, so basically they, so they did, like, from sort of White Dwarf 119 onwards, mm-hmm. they were like, we're going to do a role-playing setting, setting for Marienburg, and we're going to do it in absolutely minute detail. So each article would be about, like, three shops in Marienburg that you could go to as a role-player, and they were sort of like slowly but surely piecing this world together. In, and it was kind of going to be a book someday, but it was just this way of kind of like churning these articles out. And they were incredibly low fantasy setting um, settings for, for ham fantasy roleplay. Like you could meet a beggar who gave you clues. You could meet a guy who ran a quill shop. And they were just kind of like, and like Flame were responsible for like turning out that output. And it was really, it was a really jarring thing because if you think about what was happening with the fantasy battle game at that moment, they were slowly revving up to doing um, fourth edition. 
So fantasy was getting more high fantasy. They were they kind of all they were kind of developing the ideas for the empire. Where but what did the empire have? They have steam tanks. They have war wagons. They have like a guy like what's he called the Grand High Theogonist riding around on a big war altar thing. And as a time as they were kind of like ramping up what the empire was in the in the fantasy battle game, and it was you know high elves versus goblins or whatever. The fantasy role play game had kind of gone off down this cul-de-sac where they were like. Let's talk about the most mundane kind of like day-to-day stuff that's happening in Marienburg and kind of like doing this really, really kind of like fine detail, like barely fantasy, almost like historic role-playing. Yeah. And you can, you know, as much as I love it, you can see if that's the way the company was going and they were off on this kind of high fantasy adventure, you can sort of see why the role-playing game came to an end in the way it did or why that line came to an end. Yeah, I remember coming when I went to the UK, uh, they had already gone into like a, was it a second edition? Or I think maybe it was still first edition, but it was um, Hog's Breath Publishing or something. Hogshead, that's it. Hogshead. So Hogshead, Hogshead picked it up and they went off and they kind of published, they republished a load of, basically did reprints of the stuff from sort of mm. 87, 87 onwards. And then they did one or two books of their own. They released a thing called Realm of Sorcery, which was like basically the, the the magic rules in fantasy role play were terrible. Were like very very kind of um, cursorily sketched in. And I think I've said in one of the one of the sort of review bits at the end of the the, the fiction podcast that whenever magic comes up in these novels, it always sounds slightly wonky. Some of the worst stories are about normal magic users, and the reason for it is is they hadn't really sorted out how magic works. Hmm. So in a kind of like storytelling point of view, they hadn't really, like, in a, think of how like chaos as a concept, warp corruption as a concept is really evocative. And they kind of hadn't got, you know, they hadn't even really sorted out like the colleges of magic at that point and stuff like that. So whenever they mention magic, it's kind of slightly wonky and generic. So Hogshead did Realm of Sorcery, which was an attempt to rectify that, which it did quite well, I'd say. And then they also did a, a dwarf book, which people really love, um, which is which is a, a back called of stone and steel, and it's kind of like a dwarf character, um, sort of not character, but like sort of background setting. And it's it, like there's loads of great stuff in there, but it's you can see that sort of middle hammer vibe coming through. So like there's rules for um, monitors for the, the dwarf ships from Man of War and stuff like that, oh, sort right. of as if you might kind of want to role play as dwarf naval captains at some point or something like that. And again, shortly after that, GW pulled the plug on it and that, and it kind of got, it got shut down. And what happened to it then? Because it went to a second edition. Yeah. So, um, so, so the, the interesting, so all the way through that, Mm. what, what I almost give a plug to is there was a big fan community run like in the background there were people buying and like and right and like some of the earliest sort of internet communities i was on was people talking to one another about this this role-playing game and there was a, a magazine called um warpstone which was like a fanzine that was being produced to quite a high standard so like warpstone sort of ran all the way through there being nothing into hogshead and then it went to fantasy flight 
Um, and I didn't have much to do. I never, I never bought that that second edition. But like they, people seem to really, really like Fantasy Flight version. They they sorted out the um, they sorted out a lot of the magic rules. They sorted out a lot of the kind of the kind of rough edges around around combat. But I'm I'm very much a setting guy, and the setting was very much. It felt more. Like, it was kind of like the same time as Storm of Chaos. That was its kind of back. That was its kind of background setting. I think it was like Storm was like it was set at the same time as the Storm of Chaos. Do you remember that big campaign that happened uh, during like one of the later editions of Warhammer? Yeah, yeah, like like in the later, like I guess like six something like that. And they did, yeah. It was like a big. It was another one of those big campaign events they did where like the ending wasn't quite what they hoped it to be. So <laughs> sort of retconned it back to. Fact, it was one of those. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, no, actually, chaos didn't win, and and we need the empire to still exist. So they kind of, you know, I, I've got a very dim memory of it, but it was it was at the same time of that, and it was in that setting, and didn't like people. People seem to really like it. They kind of like they produced tons and tons and tons of quite expensive hardback books that people seem to buy up, and that was really popular. Um, and then it went into a third edition where it became a, like, they kind of, how do I explain it? It was, a, it was a game that you played, like, with loads and loads of card sets. It had loads, like, the game came in a box, and it was an attempt to make more kind of narrative, sophisticated, modern role-playing game. But you needed all of this cardboard kit that went with it. Um Oh my god! Am I getting this wrong? Am I wrong about who who took over after the second edition? There was a second edition. I didn't have much to do it, but then the third edition definitely was Fantasy Flight. It was Fantasy. And they and they produced these big cardboard games, which people hated because it it felt almost more like a board game, right. um, and people didn't like like that very much. And that kind of went nowhere. And now it's back in a fourth edition with lots of the original writers from first and second on it. Um, and it's like, and it's like so much stuff nowadays. It's all about kind of evoking the nostalgia for people, and they've re-released and redone all of those, like the the Enemy Within campaign, its big original campaign, and they've got um, what's he called, like Graham Davis working on it, and people like that, people who are like were were the original creators of Warhammer. So it's gonna, you know, it, we, we've kind of come full circle, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, exactly. the the fantasy flight one. I know that copped a lot of flack, but it was probably mm. the one one version of Warhammer Fantasy roleplay that I was actually quite interested in because I saw all the cards, and I'm, I'm a card guy. I love cards in my games, and it just sounded yeah. like a really interesting way of uh, reinterpreting the system. That it just yeah, like 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 they were they were ahead of their time. Mm. Yeah, so like they like the big thing behind it was that. Um, the big thing behind it was that it was meant to going to be like a narrative-driven thing, where like you were you were engaged in that collaborative storytelling. Um, but and like if you look at modern role-playing games now, look at things like Knives in the Dark, Blades in the Dark, or whatever. Like modern kind of the most popular, most highly um, highly praised games that were then it, it, it seemed like it had those kind of ideas in it. But I think. These were booked like second edition. I just looked it up again. It was, it was Black Industries originally. Remember them? They were like, right. yep, yep. Uh, like an, an imprint thing. Um, and then they did these really, really detailed setting books. And this, and like, I think 
I always think role playing is either about like you have really, really detailed setting and you're exploring this world or it's collaborative storytelling. And it was such just too much of a, a jump from um, like the setting, the world, the granularity to to the um, like this kind of collaborative storytelling thing. And I think people were just never going to be ready for it. And I don't know, it probably probably the price point as well like buying extra bits of kit to be able to like play it was probably too much, I would say. So Lewis, am I right in thinking that you actually entered like the hobby as a role player more than a war gamer? No, not really. Um, I suppose I kind of did it. So I got into GW when I was nine going on 10. So my first issue was White Dwarf 117, which is like, I remember having these absolutely insane kind of conversions of a, um, of like demon princes in it. And at the back, um, like these kind of, I'm just me opening that magazine, getting a copy of White Dwarf and being like, what the hell is this? And just like having my mind blown and instantly addicted to it. But I think when I got into it, like the idea that you were like either a role player or a, a war gamer was far less distinct. Like, I feel like if you went into a, a GW or a, a UK gaming shop in 1990, 91, 92, you had loads of role-playing games alongside loads of miniatures. So initially, I would say that, like, when I was a kid buying these things, I bought a copy of Wuffrup when I went to secondary school or just as I went to secondary school, and I'd been collecting miniatures alongside that. And I think... And I played for like a couple of years as like quite a young kid doing like being into both of these things. And I suppose I got into role playing, you know, like, you know, like Vampire the Masquerade and stuff like that. So like that kind of came along. Like, oh, no, look at this. This is sophisticated. You're being a vampire in a nightclub. They don't want to pretend to be an elf anymore. And I kind of like moved away from GW. Moved, like I collected like a, a big chaos epic army and all of that type of stuff when I was sort of 13, 14, and then I moved on to like being into World of Darkness stuff as a teenager because it felt sophisticated and kind of left GW behind. But then, yeah, both the role-playing and the the miniatures at the same time. And I think they, yeah, that's my kind of my thing. It, it was, I definitely saw them as kind of existing alongside one another, mm-hmm. which I guess these books kind of reflect. Mm. Wonderful. And, and um, so... You know, we talked about, we mentioned your podcast before, which is the Old Hammer Fiction, um, Old Hammer Fiction uh, podcast. So yeah. <laughs> I'll leave a link in the show notes for people to go and check that yeah. out because it's really, it, you know, you've, you've just sort of initially started that. I, I, I thought it was actually quite an old podcast that I picked up on, but I realized it wasn't. It's sort of something that you sort of uh, recently sort of started. So how, yeah. did that all be, how did that all start, mate? How did it all begin? So, you know, you were partially responsible for it. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so I, I obviously I've, I've been in the Old Hammer community um, on Facebook since about 2014. Um, my, that's when my daughter was born. And I, I obviously you get stuck in the house a lot more when you have a kid. And I was looking to like, I want to stop painting armies. I was playing like privateer press games and stuff like that. I want to paint for love and to just do like a bit, you know, bits and pieces here and there because I'm not going anywhere for the minute. And I started, and I got back into painting like old hammer miniatures. Um, and my particular area of interest, I would say, is like 
1987 to 1992, that kind of third edition era of miniatures. Um, and I was really struck and I became really obsessed with this period. And I think that it's really, really a really interesting period because I call it like, or I think of it as like the Cambrian explosion. Like there's this moment in evolution when like all of a sudden there's all of these creatures that kind of like evolve really, really quickly. And there's a huge diversity. Um, and that's how that period feels to me. All of a sudden games workshops going, what if we produce board games? What if, we produced like the third edition of Warhammer Fantasy Battle. What if we produced games for kids? What if we produced a record label? Like all of this different stuff. What if we, you know, Realm of Chaos falls in that in that era, those two big books. Um, and it just felt like there was this real kind of fizz of creativity of people kind of not knowing what they're doing and just trying stuff out. And then when you get to fourth edition, you can sort of see evolution taking effect and you get this kind of, this kind of moment of kind of control come in. And before that, you've got the period when Games Workshop was primarily about role playing. And it was like, you had like the kind of second edition, like narrative games for Warhammer Fantasy Battle. But if you look at White Dwarf before that period, it's a role players magazine and it was about role playing. And Brian Ansell comes in, I'm sure you know this story, and makes the people in White Dwarf move from London to Nottingham. And a load of people are already like peed off about this and they're already angry and they love and a load of them quit or, or kind of get some like yeah they quit and they leave a they the last issue of white dwarf that they do if you read the article of first letters the first letter of the description of each article it spells out sod off brian ansel <laughs> and I can't remember which which issue it is, but like they were really really cross. That's yeah? brilliant. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, there you are. There you are. So that's like that's quite a, like a, a famous kind of old hammer story. So that for me is the beginning of this period when Ansel is like, we should do miniatures, and we're going to go down this line of like miniatures, and to an extent, the Warhammer Fantasy Battle IP, this setting. Um. So that brings me back to you. So there's a podcast called the Grognard Files, and they deal with UK role-playing sort of up until, from like the late 1970s up until um, 1987, that era. And they kind of and they kind of say, oh, we're quite interested in GW, but when they get mainly into miniatures, we weren't interested in them, yeah? Mm -hmm. And then there's you, and you are clearly like a sort of middlehammer podcast, looking at that fourth, fifth era, kind of the bright colours, the red, all of that type of stuff, yeah. Is that a fair? Kind of, yeah, you, you can. I'm saying, you know, and I, and I, and I love your <laughs> your you guys's enthusiasm for all that, yeah? yeah. And then I realised there's no podcast for the middle. Mm. There's nobody covering this kind of like tumultuous period when I basically would argue Games Workshop's IP gets created. Mm -hmm. You know, like the the fourth edition is riffing on things that have been established in the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay rulebook. Mm. Um, that, you know, this incredible, like, you know, incredibly valuable IP that, it, that is, you know, in a million billion computer games with 40K, that has coalesced before second edition um, 40K comes out. That's created toward, you know, in the realm of chaos books, yeah? Mm. So this this is incredibly fascinating period that is 
creates Games Workshop, creates Warhammer, who is also just like a bunch of weird kind of hippie and um, Midlands kind of metalheads just pulling ideas out of their ears. Do you know what I mean? And I thought there should be a podcast that documents the history of that period um, in the way Grognard Files does the earlier bit, and you guys do like a deep dive into Titan Legions or whatever, yeah? And like documenting that evolution. And then I started doing research and there was, and I came across a blog called Awesome Lies. And Awesome Lies is the history of the Warhammer universe, basically. It's a history of Warhammer and the development of Warhammer fantasy role-playing, stuff like that. And this blog was so good and so comprehensive in its coverage of kind of this period of, um, of, of like the, the, the story of Warhammer developing. I was like, oh man, there's no point in me making that podcast because all it would be is me just borrowing so heavily from Awesome Lies. I might like, there's, there's scarcely any point to it. I would really recommend it as a read. If you want to really know the history of like, of that, of particularly of the fantasy battle setting, it's so, so good. And I thought, well, that's like, that's kind of a non-starter because I'm a bit cowed by this, by this blog. But then I started to think about, well, what else do I join, enjoy in podcast form? And I really enjoy short fiction podcasts. And I thought what I could do is I, uh, so I, I'm a teacher now, but before I like moved into teaching, I trained to be a professional actor and I went to drama school and all that type of stuff. I thought, and what I did a lot of was, or trained to do quite a bit, was radio drama. And I thought, oh, I could use that and I could use the, these Warhammer novels that are right from the, that kind of cusp moment. I'd say the first four come out in 1989. And these, to me, that's the absolute crucible moment for the development of this, this IP, this, this company or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I could use that as a way to, like, like reading these stories as a way to think about those settings and a way to think about what this, this world that we're all obsessed with, what, like, what was going on with it, what happened with its development and all that type of stuff. And basically it made, it, it made life a lot easier because I'd always intended to do it quite scripted. So I didn't have to write a two hour long kind of script where I go, hi guys, this week I'm gonna analyze the history of lizard men in the Warhammer world and have to like write and research all of this thing. You can do the reading mm. and then I write two sides of A4 where I do the kind of commentary at the end. And I find that that balance works, works quite well for me. So that's what I'm doing. Basically I'm too lazy and untalented to do a proper podcast. So I'm just (laughs) reading out other people's words (laughs) Um, and then doing a little bit of commentary at the end. And the intent is that it falls in between, like there's grognard files to my behind me. There's you guys in front of me. And this is the one that explores that kind of, that crucible moment. But having said that, what I would say about it being the crucible moment, guess what? It's the moment, it's 1989, I think is the most important year in the history of, of Games Workshop. Mm-hmm. And 1989 is the year I got into Games Workshop. Mm-hmm. So like, I think that's the story for absolutely everybody. What was the most important year? When were things really exciting? When was the best? Like the day I went into a Games Workshop for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's all been downhill from there, you know, they've lost it. And <laughs> like... So there's probably, like, you know, I'm I'm open to other interpretations of the history of the Warhammer IP, but like, I feel like 1989 is is a really important moment. 
Yep, no, I, I agree with you, mate, because I think I got into the hobby about 1989 as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because I've got third edition Fantasy Battle and I've got the roleplay book as well from a guy at school. Mm. Um, he sold me that and uh, I think a compilation of the Enemy Within campaign. Sort yeah, of that's right. That would be Warhammer Adventure. I had the same one, that's Parallel Lives. Big amazing. blue book. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. With all the maps in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Colored so that was pages, like yellow colored pages. And that's right. It was really weird. Yeah. Um, like, and I think the other thing to say about about that period and the thing that I, I really think about it, or I love about it, is I think that they were the the Warhammer writers, certainly on Woofrup, were reflecting what was going on in UK politics at that moment, or like the world. So like. And, and like so it's this weird thing where it's a fantasy setting but it's also set in like late 80s thatcher's britain so if you look at like i mean like what i've heard is is that when they were making up character classes for warhammer fantasy roleplay they used to just go out and like wander around nottingham and look at the people that they could see and then those people became the jobs you could do so you'd have like sort of like there's a character that's a board who is like a drug dealer and a kind of and a pimp. And there's a character who's an agitator, which is like a kind of guy that sells the socialist workers newspaper on the streets of Outdoor or on the streets of Nottingham. And I feel like I feel like it's a setting that's really kind of influenced by sort of late 80s Margaret Thatcher's Britain, but also by the fear of nuclear war. And I think like what I the, the best ones of these stories for me reflect that kind of like nuclear apocalypse kind of like the anxiety about a nuclear apocalypse coming the anxiety about um about uh radiation like chernobyl happened the year before warhammer fantasy roleplay gets published and i think at some level those collapsing warp gates are like a fantasy version of chernobyl this thing has exploded somewhere off in the north and it's slowly gonna like kill us all um yeah so i find that really interesting as well yeah, I didn't really think about it that way, but now that you said it, I can really yeah. see that correlation there happening. Yeah. I I really like the way that you know after you after you read a story, you actually go into this sort of you have a sort of a deep analysis of mm. the writer, the history at the time, uh, and like you say that the social um, yeah, uh, and that's situation like- and that kind of thing and the influences then. Yeah, and again, I I stole that from another another podcast. I stole that oh. as a, a podcast that does like um. There's two of them. There's a classic ghost story podcast, which works the way mine does, where they do like a story and then an analysis at the end. And also there's a podcast called um, like HP Podcraft, which analyzes HP Lovecraft stories. And I'm really influenced by them and kind of going, okay, let's read or analyze this story and then like do a deep dive in- into the background of it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, again, no, like I've just nicked my ideas from other people once more, a bit like everybody who works for Warhammer making up, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a hom- like my theft is a homage to the art of theft, really, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> you know, like nicking things from Tolkien and, um, and, and Moorcock, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm not. I'm not exactly doing anything original here. I'm. I'm sort of yeah. just regurgitating what's uh, what I love about the Games Workshop hobby from the '90s. So it's really, yeah, I'm replicating the paint jobs. I'm yeah. old games like they they used to and that kind of thing. So yeah, mm. we're sort of just um, taking the best bits of what we love and what we find comfortable and what gives us joy, I suppose, yeah. in the hobby. But and that's it. It's like it's definitely like a midlife crisis thing. I think. Yeah. Really, it's kind of like 
I can't afford a Ferrari, mate. So this is it. Yeah, that's it. But but you know that's funny. You should say that. But like you know, what I'm really into is I make dioramas. I make mm. I make like those 1980s. I've made a couple oh, of those yeah. like 1980s flats dioramas you know the ones that you have on the back of white yep. dwarf and like yep. things like that and i think part of the reason i enjoy it so much is that i think i always wanted to do it as a kid but if you, you were going to do it you needed to clip the model off the base and glue it onto the diorama and that meant that you'd never be able to play with that model again <laughs> and i just didn't have the money that like to like waste models gluing them to a base and never using them you know what i mean so every time I build a diorama, I'm like that kind of solid gold Homer kind of meme. Like, I feel like I'm a big man. I can afford to do this. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I can glue this Gene Steeler Patriarch to a, to, a, to a scenic base and never use it in a game. It doesn't matter. Um, so, yeah, like, I think that's, it is a, it is a big thing of, like, being able to afford, the, afford, like, I can't afford a Ferrari, but I can afford the toys I couldn't afford when I was 13. Look at me yeah, now. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, every time I go to, a, like, a home centre, I, I look, like, you know, I come across, like, picture frames, and I think, oh, man, I've got to do that cutaway diorama that they yeah, did in the that's 80s. Yeah, exactly that's exactly I what I use, like, those yeah. deep, deep picture frames. Worked really well. Yep. No, I think I've got, I think I'm going to actually do one with because um, I've got some Chaos Dwarf third edition Chaos Dwarves and third edition skeletons that I'll probably never mm. ever use. I think I might do like a mini sort of diorama, like you said. Uh, that's really got me inspired to do that. I'll, I'll do that as like a tutorial mm. on the channel or something. That'd be fun to do. Interesting though, because a lot of the 1980s models mm. faced directly left or right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see what I mean? So they, because they were made perfectly flat and in one piece. Yeah. And then if you look at the 90s one. You, they, they really, A, they've worked out that like what you're meant to do with these models is play miniatures games with them. So they start thinking about ranking them up. Yeah. So like a lot of them face forward and hold a sword directly above their head. Mm -hmm. But it, I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether that works as well in that kind of like that 2D format. You know what I mean? Yeah, play, that's a, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you look at like the Mike McVeigh sort of early 90s ones, so he, does, he does the... Um, the uh here not hero quest what's it called warhammer quest what one where they go down all the multiple levels and he's using a way deeper um a deeper kind of set frame than they did in the one the ones in the early 80s because i think you need to be able to turn those big chunky 90s models a little bit they want to be at a sort of 45 degree angle interesting i've never thought about that before but yeah like 1980s was all about facing, you either face left or you face right. And then yeah. <laughs> 1990s is facing forwards and pointing and holding a sword above your head. Yeah, that would just brilliant, those cutaway mm. dioramas. I mean, you know, that's, that's quite an investment of time, but I yeah. think in the end you can sort of hang it up on the wall and look at it in pride and mm. it tells a story in itself. Yeah, um, yeah I really like that. So. And I think that was, and I, that was a big thing with the miniatures as well. Is they, yeah. in, uh, I'm like... I will make no bones about the fact that probably fourth, fourth and fifth edition played way better than third edition did, and second edition um, 40k undoubtedly played way better than Rogue Trader. You could sit down and play that game, and it worked. Yeah. Um, and part of it was is they worked out they're like, oh, we should sell people units of models that are just like ten guys that go together, and there's that model on the table. And they didn't work. They hadn't kind of apart from the regiments of renown, those kind of metal box sets, they hadn't worked that out. You were buying like blister packs of models that didn't necessarily have all the same equipment on them and, and stuff like that. 
mm-hmm. just by like random bags of fighters or orcs or whatever. But it means that those 80 models with their kind of random assortment of equipment look really great in these narrative settings. Like everybody looks like a little individual character telling his own little story. Yeah. So I think that's a big appeal of it, yeah. Absolutely, mate. Yeah. No, I um I still have a lot of love for the like that that era of of Warhammer uh, or mm. third edition, um, especially the artwork, the models. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I've still got a lot of nostalgic love for that. Even though I never played the game, I don't have any nostalgic feelings for the game at all. No. The models and the artwork, especially, um, you know, bring back a lot of uh, a lot of good memories. That's it. It's it's the ideas factory. It certainly yeah. it certainly wasn't the rules factory. Mm. But it was like, it was definitely the like the moment of like well what about you know what about these four chaos gods what about these like what's what's the deal with these space marines what you know what's the deal with this kind of like this technocratic cult and all of that type of stuff it is really you know really exciting but then I think it probably a bit disappointing at times to get on the table or at least like disappointing if you don't want to do something with a with a GM controlling everything and kind of muddling your way through. I don't even know if I'm that nostalgic for the rule sets. And um, I was going to touch on something else too. I think, you know, we're probably both great admirers of um, William King's work and what mm. he contributed to the, the GW lore and um, developing a lot of the, the army books for 4th edition. And I think it sort of uh, solidified a lot of these ideas I had in 3rd edition, especially yeah. the anthology series of books. And then he and then uh, King just sort of brought everything together and, and sort of created these um, these factions and, and armies within Warhammer, mm. which then carried on ever since. You know they've they've um, you know he sort of uh, set the template down. I think for a lot of the the lore in GW. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I definitely. So I'm I'm in the I'm in at the moment on the podcast. I'm in the middle of. Um, of doing the the three original Gotrek and Felix stories mm-hmm. that appeared in those original um, those original anthologies, and what you really get from King is that he is somebody who has played this role playing game and has played this miniatures game, mm-hmm. so he's got a really really like good understanding of the setting, both in terms of what it's meant to feel like, what combat is meant to feel like in this world and what the kind of stakes are of combat, but also of the world kind of like, the world kind of beyond that. And it's it's funny that you should mention that, but I was reading this morning as I'm um, doing The Dark Beneath the World, which is the third one, Ooh. and there's this kind of ca- character who turns up who's called um, Prince Belagar, mm. and he's like, the, he's the, um, yeah, he's like this prince who's kind of excavating or they've kind of gone and tried to recapture Carrig Eight Peaks, this old dwarf hold, and it's kind of gone quite badly. It's you know, it's it's the mines of Moria. It's um, you know, just once again, kind of a, a lift from Tolkien. Um, and I thought I'd just Google him, see if anything ever came up again. And he was he turns up as a model in Eighth Edition, oh, like, really? and he's there in the end times, and wow. he appears for the first time as like a kind of back, not a background character, but as a sort of supporting cast character in the third Gotrek and Felix book. Wow. Um, so like King's reach is absolutely, yeah. absolutely massive up, up through these things mm-hmm. and kind of getting a, but at, at the same time, I feel like those, those first three stories are really melancholy mm-hmm. and they've got, um, and they've got, again, this kind of like, you really get the kind of, 
futileness of of trying to do anything in this Warhammer setting. You know, like if you're a troll slayer, you have chosen your own doom. You're never gonna you're never gonna achieve anything in this type of thing. And I feel like at the same time as he kind of goes on and creates all of this stuff, um, there were there was there's almost like unexplored avenues of his writing there that kind of like fell away in that in that evolution process but you know he did he, the other a story that, have you ever read um the story laughter of the dark gods no sadly i haven't mate no no so it's it's you're, you're like they, the, you're this yeah story. i will it's it's <laughs> the one like when i when i tested it out i did a little section from it great and basically it's a story of a chaos champion going through the process that set out in the realm of chaos books if you were to play the realm of chaos campaign um to become a demon prince oh wow. and you, you know those rules where you're like you get a mutation yep. and you get a reward from chaos and sometimes the mutations were like got the gods punishing you and sometimes they were giving you like other stuff yeah and king basically takes a game of that account like imagines a game of that mm. and turns it into a narrative wow. and i normally would say like oh like a guy just like narrativizing a a game he's played would be rubbish but king's real gift is that he takes all of the rules and all of the like the kind of almost the mechanics of the game and turns it into this narrative thing and it's an absolute cracker of a story and like I would, I would guess that like looking at that, that kind of explains why he ends up doing those fourth edition books. Because I wonder if somebody looked at him. Hey, he's in the studio doing it. So he's probably the guy in line to do it anyway. But like, here's a guy who knew how to take rules and turn them into setting that was really, really evocative. Mm. Which I guess is what those kind of battle descriptions in the um in the in the army books were all about weren't they yeah and i think he just like it's that thing i suppose that like the warhammer game was in his bones mm. in a way that it wasn't for some of these other authors and that means sometimes other people do slightly more interesting out there things but he's definitely a guy who has like got the setting do you know what i mean yeah Absolutely, mate. Yeah. Mm. Well, he did famously play a game with uh, Jervis Johnson in the fourth edition Dwarf Armies book. Playing, did playing. Um, uh, who was it again? He's playing a Dwarf Army, uh, but it was owned by not him. It wasn't his army. Uh, who was it again? It's one of the artists at Games Workshop mm -hmm. at the time. And I'm really angry at myself for forgetting his <laughs> name because he's such a brilliant guy. Yeah. Uh, it's something about something about doing this in the podcast. You're like, yeah, you know, shouting kids outside. There's a troll um, in the background there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was. Um, it was like it's that thing where you're like, oh, I know so much about this. All of this information's at my fingertips. And then like, wait, who did publish the second edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay? <laughs> and it's like slides out of your head, and it's like. <laughs> makes you realize how, how often when you're talking on the internet to people you're actually like googling stuff before you um uh before you um before you kind of write anything down how is it green ronin that was the company that was this completely other company that ran warhammer fantasy roleplay after hogshead and then they got taken over by black industries and then they got shut down ah, i should have remembered that Oh, I, yes. I didn't even know about them. Okay. Yeah. Wow. It's sort of changed hands quite a few times. It, it? it did, yeah. And I, yeah. And I said this if thing. Nobody wanted like, it or too mm, hot. I think, like, 
I think like part of it is part of it is always like, is this distracting from our main IP? If if people are into Warhammer, we want them to be buying and building three thousand point armies. And I think I sometimes wonder that they got like to like slightly cagey about the computer games and slightly cagey about the role-playing games because, and for that matter, like the specialist games as well. Mm-hmm. Like you just want to be channeling people into buying and building huge collections of miniatures. Sorry, I've taken us off. I've, I've, I've done a, a pointless callback there, but yeah. No, it's all right. It's Wayne England I was thinking about, the artist Wayne That's England. it, yeah. There you are. Gave you time. He had a very famous uh, dwarf army for third edition that oh the blue and white one yeah yep, that's right yeah i remember that oh brilliant yeah they were great that kind of yeah. feudal feeling kind of guys yeah i always knew that um yeah william was a bit of a dwarf player at heart so mm. sort of same feeling. yeah he said like, that's my big thing is and i'm going to talk about this on the podcast i'm working on at the moment is mm. he really gets dwarf psychology yeah. like there's a um he really thinks about the idea that there are the and I think this is this is kind of inspired by Tolkien as well. There's an idea that like dwarves, there's elves who are kind of like quite alien creatures. Mm. In like what are their what are their motivation? What are their you know, they exist almost like on another another plane. And then there's humans, and then they're dwarves who kind of have human feelings and desires only more so. And I think he really kind of like develops that in a in a in a really interesting way. What if people never forgot? shameful things that happened to them and you experience them just as intensely 10 years later as you did the day they happened what if your honor was so important to you and i think he you know he's got a really good sense of like who these these human-like but not quite human creatures are and they've got to they've got to carry that burden for like over 300 years because their life yeah they don't they don't die yeah that's yeah. it as well yeah <laughs> Poor live forever yeah yeah, but um, yeah, but you know, you know, as you as you mentioned about the other character that survived until like eighth edition. Well, Gotrix survived until the uh, Age of Sigma. Yeah, it's crazy. It's that like, yeah. yeah, and I think that's it. It's and it's also it's the simple thing that he's got. Partly, it's the idea of like, what if we paired mm. Tolkien with punk sensibilities. Mm-hmm. So I think, and that's a big part of, of of what Warhammer is. It's this idea of like some of these people will have mohawks. It's yeah. not just like a, a super serious kind of like who's a like Lord of the Rings artist, Alan Lee, or somebody like that, where everything's kind of quite somber and, and medieval. It's a blending of these medieval things and this kind of punk sensibility. Mm. And I think that's you know got track in a weird way with his his giant mohawk kind of sums that up definitely mate definitely and yeah think mm. of like kev adams for like third edition uh one of the fantasy orcs absolutely yeah that was punk mate everything about yeah, it yeah absolutely <laughs> it's, yeah it really yeah it's yeah, really, really interesting you know? yeah. like yeah they, like those those kind of like the orcs are absolute like the kind of the football hooligan voice is yeah. like <laughs> something that i'm really interested in because when they come to write these warhammer novels it's like wait are you gonna are they going to speak like that? Are they going to do that? And you can see these guys kind of go, well, I'm going to put an orc in this story. But then they're like, oh, it can't be like a Warhammer orc. That's going to sound really stupid. So <laughs> they kind of like, they all kind of like veer back and they're just like vague sort of like Tolkien, Tolkien-esque dudes. And consequently, they don't feel like weirdly that whenever orcs and goblins appear 
it's some of the least Warhammerish feeling moments in these novels because mm. they can't quite pair up that like what had been created in the setting with a kind of oi that's my leg vibe of, of orcs and goblins and with these kind of like genuinely like perilous grim darkness stories they're trying to tell yeah i've got that sense of feeling with the wolf riders story you just you just um, released recently on your podcast it's sort of like yeah. the orcs and goblins they seem like this overly threatening menace but then they really didn't do much and there was no sort of they didn't really you know, have a place in the story. Yeah, nothing that, really about them. There was that's like, that's something that I talk about. Is that yeah, like, like the big thing you have to understand about Warhammer in that third edition Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay thing mm. is it was just kind of thrown together. There's loads of different ideas from all sorts of different places, mm -hmm. and you were selling this game to people who presumably had either seen a like seen a picture of an orc on the front of like a regiment of renowned box and like, or you had played Dungeons and Dragons or you read Tolkien. So like an orc's an orc, you know, it's, it's an orc. What do you like, what, what's, what's to kind of, what's to, to explore in that? Um, and they kind of consequently, nobody's really thought about like, well, where do they come from? Are they created by chaos? Are they created by like, you know, later on we come to this kind of like a fungoid creatures kind of thing. Mm. But they just like, back in those days, like you just kind of like, you could sketch things in enough for people to get a vague sense of what's going on. And then you're like, yeah, there you are, orcs. Um, so yeah, and then, which is fine because, that, you know, on the tabletop, it makes absolute sense. And all of those 80s, like, like the man mangler and all of that type of stuff really gives you a sense of what they were like visually and the illustrations in Warhammer armies were like brilliant. You instantly know what you're doing. And it's some brilliant like Gary Chalk art from that time as well that kind of really captures it. But if you're trying to kind of explain what their life cycle is or they're a cult, like, you know, what's their social structure or whatever, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. But that's it. <laughs> well, Lewis, it's been an absolute pleasure talking. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been really great to talk to you. Really, really glad to be out there. So thank hey. you very much. My pleasure, and I, we should get you back on to do your first White Dwarf at some point if you have time in the future, because I'd love to explore your first yeah. White Dwarf when you pick that up. That'd be awesome. Yeah, excellent. But love to. If, if anybody hasn't listened to the Old Hammer Fiction podcast, please do that. I'll leave a link in the show notes. You have to listen to it. I thoroughly enjoy it, and I think um, Lewis is on a really good thing here. He's got the, he's got the voice. He's got the passion for uh, telling these old stories, and it's it's being broadcast to a whole new audience, and they can learn all about the um, the Old Hammer ways of uh, Warhammer, which is great. So, Lewis, mm, thanks again. Yeah. And like I said, we'll, we'll look into doing something with the fourth edition stuff at some point as well, won't we? Yeah, yeah. mate, that'd be fantastic, mate. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's the thing. I've been dreaming about this and, and hoping someone would actually do it. I couldn't do it because I've got a horrible Aussie accent, mate, and I'll just totally <laughs> ruin it. But um, you've got... Yeah. yeah. We needed someone like you, Lewis, to get to pick up this project, mate, and, and run with it. And I think it's it's going yeah. absolutely fantastic. I've been, yeah, I've been thinking about that. And there's a whole load of, like, there's like a brilliant story in the first... Um, when they released the Eldar rules in 127, mm. White Dwarf 127, where it's like Eldar versus Slaneshi cultists, and it's just like a two-page of White Dwarf story, but it would make a, a great little snippet. So maybe we'll look into that into the into the future as well. Mate, I'm looking forward to the next one. I can't wait. So thank nice you. Nice one, dude. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Take it easy. Take a, have a good day. Take care. <laughs> ah!
guys, this is Chris Snyder. Ugh, not the guy who talks about remote gaming all the time. Yes, and I'm back to give you an update on what I've been playing in the world of remote gaming within the Crown of Command Discord. Recently, I was talking to my friend uh, Clem in the paint and chat, and somehow the topic of Man of War came up. He said he had never played it, and I offered to uh, host a remote game for him. So he accepted, and he must have been excited about it, because in that week, uh, he went out and bought his own copy, which is kind of cool. So we set up a game, and it was he was playing the Empire, I was playing the Bretonians. And the game uh, got off to a, a normal start. We moved our fleets towards each other, and then in the second turn, uh, things got bad for the Empire. Uh, the Empire Wizard failed to cast a spell. The Bretonian Wizard, uh, I just thought, eh, I'll try this Volcano spell. It needs a six to, to go off. And of course I rolled a six, and then another six. So that was three fire strikes against his great ship. Uh, two of them hit the same location, and since there's no saving throw, that was an immediate um, critical hit. And of course, on a critical hit chart, another six. So that's three below the waterline damage on his great ship right off the bat. And then my uh, galleon uh, swooped in and did a barrage of broadsides, got lucky again, and sunk his uh, great ship along with his admiral and wizard in turn two. So um, that was pretty tough to come back from. Um, he did end up taking out some some of my ships, uh, the Buccaneers, and, and I think the Corsair. But um, at the end of the game, it was it was pretty clear the Empire were not having a good day. So we played an immediate rematch. Uh, this time he got his revenge because on his second turn, uh, he positioned his great ship so that it was uh, with with the wind, which gave him a bonus to movement. Plus, he had a streamlined hull man of war card on his great ship, and that gave him just enough movement to sail straight ahead, uh, come in contact with my galleon uh, from the front, so I had no cannons to, to fend him off. And with his massive five companies of crew, he was able to take out uh, all the crew of my galleon and scuttle it right then and there. So uh that was that was quite a turnaround um i did manage to uh bring some of my corsairs to bear and in the last round i got some lucky shots and was able to take out his great ship as well but that was um that was uh they were both really good games um you know some unfortunate events for both of us but uh we were able to kind of you know come back and, and still make it make it close in both games uh, toward the end. So, um, yeah, I got pretty excited about playing that Man of War game. Um, again, thanks to Clem. I'm going to be hosting Man of War at an upcoming game convention. So that gave me some practice, um, you know, and helped me really iron out some of the kinks I had in the rules. Now, on a side note, 
I am interested in the possibility of playing a remote campaign. So if I can get some some other guys who are interested and we can coordinate some schedules, uh, it'd be kind of fun to play a number of different Man of War games and link them together uh, with the experience system that's in the in the back of the Man of War book. So um, if you have any interest in, in that, you don't have to have anything because um, I have, I think, enough fleets to, to manage um, five players. Uh, or if you have a number of fleets and you would be interested in hosting, uh, you know, joining along with that, you know, let, get in touch so we can we can work something out. Okay, so that was Man of War. That was just uh, yesterday, actually. So again, had a lot of fun with that. <clears throat> um, a week before that, I had tried to play a game of Necromunda with my friend Andreas. Uh, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to get the timing to do it. He was running a little late, so I set up the game, and uh, while I was waiting for him, I ran through kind of a sample game myself just to see how things would work. Um, unfortunately, he was a little busy, so he wasn't able to, to play, but um, while he was uh, packing for another uh, game event, he was kind of in the background, and I was playing out the game myself, kind of narrating what was happening. And um, I discovered, you know, pretty early on there that I'm going to have to rethink how I do the camera using the terrain that I have. I just have too much dense terrain with a lot of um, a lot of buildings that you can go in and under. And it's, it's pretty difficult to see uh, with a, a camera from a, you know, pulled back from a higher view. And uh, if you want to zoom in and see some of the action, uh, you kind of lose track of exactly what's happening in the overall picture. So I think I'm going to have to to condense my terrain a little bit, make it not so, um, not so many nooks and crannies that you can get into. In fact, as I was playing in person, I lost track of some of my own models and I was like standing right next to them because they're, you know, they're hiding under, under roofs or under um, under different things. But one of the highlights of the game that I thought was kind of fun, um, we had Caldor versus Delac. And there was a, a couple of Delac gangers and a Juve, and they were in a really good firing position behind a barricade, uh, fending off any kind of Caldor advance. <clears throat> but my Caldor leader was able to sneak under some buildings and uh, come out through a side door and charge uh, the 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 black ganger. And of course, the the leader has a chainsaw and auto pistol, so he was able to to get some extra an extra dice and made quick work of that ganger. And then able to follow uh, follow up move into the uh, juve, and it looked like the juve was really in trouble. But then on the Delac turn, um, the Caldor leader, he had two dice. Uh, both of them came up ones. Uh, and that Juve was able to roll a five. And even though the Caldor ganger made him parry that roll, he got a six. So it was even worse. And that uh, scared little Juve was able to fend off and actually take out the Caldor ganger, which resulted in a bottle test so that was kind of fun to see you know an unlikely event like that but um 
you know, maybe in the future I'll be able to play another Nectar Muda Gang. But once I've sorted out um, my terrain and made it not so dense. Okay, so prior to that, in the, the week before that, uh, we've been continuing on with our Warhammer Quest campaign that we're playing. There's um, uh, myself and three others, and we're having a lot of fun with that. I think we're in our fourth or fifth quest at this point. We have compiled enough um, gold for all of us to train up to level two. But unfortunately, we haven't been able to find a proper settlement to uh, find that training. It seems like every time we finish an adventure and, and go to travel somewhere, some weird event comes up or we get lost or find a bad map or something and, and end up in these uh, tiny villages. And if anybody, if you know anything about um, the Warhammer Quest, these, these villages and, and, and towns, that's where some you know, wacky things can happen. So uh, just to give you an idea of some of the things that have been happening to my wizard, uh, the first village that we were at, I was approached by a uh, trader in Aldorf who is uh, starting a new company, and he sold me some stock. So now every time I go to a settlement, I have to roll to see how my stock is doing. Um, so far, I've been um, doing a little better than breaking even. I've gained some money off of that. But um, I know that in any, if, I, if I roll a six, um, a windfall could happen, and I can really, you know, bank some some good money off of that. But if it's a one, my stock is worthless because the company goes bankrupt, and I'm going to lose some money. So, uh, so far, so good with that. That's kind of fun little thing to happen. Um, the next village we went to, I found a stray dog. So now I have this dog following me around. And unfortunately, he's an expensive dog because he's doubling my living expenses every time I go to town. And I can't get rid of this guy because if I do, uh, the townspeople are going to see that as animal cruelty and they'll just run me right out of the town. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of fun. Uh, the last time we played, we did manage to get to a town. So we, we have enough um, gold, like I said, we, we've got some training we're up to level two um and i spent a couple days in that town and the first day i was um accosted by someone who apparently i had insulted and challenged me to a duel um and i could have refused but i really needed to do more things in town so i stayed uh, it was a little risky i could have died but i was able to best uh, that guy in a duel and I actually um, stole his purse, so I got some extra money off of that, which was cool. Um, and then the next day, there was a uh, case of mistaken identity, and some brothers had um, they accused me of dishonoring their sister, and they were going to force me to marry her um, the next day. And since I didn't have anything else to do in town, I just kind of snuck out of town and avoided that. And I think it's kind of funny in the in the the text of that event in the book. It says you can um, sneak out of town in the night or stay for the next day and get married. Dot dot dot. And it never actually explains what happens if you get married in Warhammer Quest. But um, we think it's kind of an inside joke that if you get married, it's game over for you. 
Okay, so that's what's been going on with me. Like I said, Warhammer Quest and uh, a sample game of Necromunda, Man of War. Um, I'm hoping to get another game of uh, Space Hulk in soon. I really enjoy playing that. So I'll see if I can talk somebody into playing another game. If you're interested in playing remote games, you don't have to do it with me. You can, you can play with anybody. And um, let us know how things are going. I think it's really exciting to see people playing games, not just painting miniatures, although we love doing that too. So, all right, well, get out there and get gaming. I'll see you.